This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Kubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, I've got a terrific show lined up for you today. In the interest of the 4th of July holiday that just passed, I'm going to interview today Mr. Jeffrey Tucker, and we're going to talk about liberty. That's in segments two and three of today's program. I know you're going to appreciate Jeffrey's perspective, uh, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. It is July, which means I do have a brand new July 2023 special report for you. The report is titled Mid-Year Forecast from a Panel of Experts. Since we're in the middle of the year here and we've experienced a stock market rally now about halfway through the year, you have to ask, is this a bear market rally? Is there more downside ahead or has the market turned the corner? Uh, This report will give you the opinion of a panel of experts whom I've interviewed here on the program. And when you request that report by visiting the website, requestyourreport.com, I'll not only send you the report, I'll also send you a copy of my best-selling revenue sourcing book that contains a retirement planning strategy for the current economy. So again, to get your report, mid-year forecast from a panel of experts, as well as your copy of the best-selling book, Revenue Sourcing, just visit requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. You know, there's no shortage of financial programs on the radio, on television, no shortage of financial podcasts. And one thing all these shows, one thing all these programs have in common is that we all know what money is. Now, I know that statement sounds a bit peculiar, but let me explain. I would argue that many of you listening to this probably do not have a good definition of money. And I would argue that many financial professionals cannot accurately define what money is. Now, let me explain what I mean. Here's how I would define money. I would define money as a good store of value over time. Now, let me contrast that with how I would define currency. Currency is a medium of exchange. Currency is what you use to buy and sell things. Currency is the stuff you use in commerce to buy and sell goods and services. So money is a good store of value over time. Currency is a medium of exchange. Now, at some points in history, currency and money are the same thing, but other times, like at the present time, they are not the same thing. Now, let's take a little walk back in history. Actually, I should say a long walk back in history. We're going to go all the way back to the year 1913. I've often joked, although it's not really a joke, that the worst year in U.S. history was 1913. That's when the income tax was introduced, and that's when the Federal Reserve became the nation's third central bank. Now, for those of you that are listening to this who are not familiar with the Federal Reserve, many think that it is a government agency. It is not. The Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers that have controlled monetary policy now for 110 years. Now, in 1913, when the Fed became the central bank, there were one-ounce gold pieces called St. Gaudens gold pieces that were circulating. And this one ounce coin 
comprised of gold was worth 20 bucks. So if you were going to go down to the general store and buy $20 worth of stuff, you might throw an ounce of gold on the counter. Now, in 1914, it didn't take the Fed long to change the way currency worked, because in 1913, currency and money were actually the same thing. And I'll explain that in just a second. But the Fed in 1914 issued something called a Federal Reserve Note. Now, the Federal Reserve Note could be exchanged for the gold piece at par. In fact, a $20 Federal Reserve Note issued in 1914 had a picture of President Grover Cleveland on the front. And at the bottom of the bill, it said, we'll pay to the bearer on demand $20. So the note was not $20. The note was a claim check that allowed you to go get $20 with the piece of paper. Now, if you happen to have one of those $20 Federal Reserve notes today, you've got $20 in purchasing power. If you have a $20 gold piece, you have about $2,300 or $2,400 in purchasing power. So in 1914, a $20 Federal Reserve note and a $20 gold piece bought exactly the same thing. But here we are 110 years later, if you still hold the $20 Federal Reserve note, you have $20 worth of purchasing power. However, a $20 gold piece has about $2,300 or $2,400 in purchasing power. Now this makes my point. The Federal Reserve note was currency and the $20 gold piece was money. Currency is something used in commerce, and money is defined as a good store of value over time. Now, I can also offer you a more recent example of this. In 1964 and prior, coins minted in the United States were largely comprised of silver. And for every $100 in face amount that you had in coins, you had 72 ounces of silver. If you had 100 silver dollars, which adds up to $100 in face amount, you possess 72 ounces of silver. 200 half dollars, which was $100 in face amount, you possess the same 72 ounces of silver. The same was true of 400 quarters. The same was true of 1,000 dimes. And at that time, there were also silver certificates that circulated. And if you had a silver certificate, at the bottom of the silver certificate, it said, this is payable. So, for example, a $5 silver certificate said $5 in silver payable to the bearer on demand. Now, in 1965, coins minted in the U.S. were no longer comprised of silver. They were comprised of near worthless alloys. Now, today, if you have a $5 silver certificate, it's got about $5 in purchasing power. But if you have five silver dollars, you have about $130 in purchasing power. So again, you see the difference between currency and money. See, since 1971, that's when Richard Nixon eliminated the final link between US dollars and gold. Currency has been loaned into existence. Currency is debt. And the more currency that's created, the more debt that exists as well. For example, if you go back to the time of the great financial crisis in 2007, 2008, worldwide, there was about 100 
trillion dollars in debt. Today, after massive quantitative easing and currency creation programs by central banks around the world, there's about $300 trillion in debt. All this currency creation has led to inflation, but the next thing that we will see is deflation. Now, I can't tell you when deflation is coming, although in the last segment of today's program, I'll give you my interpretation, I'll give you my perspective, but we have totally ignored the advice offered to us by one of the founding fathers of the United States, Mr. Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson said, if we ever allow private banks to issue the control of our currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around us will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the very continent their fathers conquered. So we've gone down a road we have been warned not to go down. And we will ultimately see deflation, which I believe will lead to stocks declining in value even further, will ultimately lead to real estate declining in value even further. And I want to give you a perspective on that by offering you the July 2023 special report and the revenue sourcing book absolutely free. All you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail this information and you will get a big box of information all with no cost and with no further obligation. So again, requestyourreport.com is the website, requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I'm chatting today with returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, Jeffrey's been on the program many times. I always appreciate his perspective. He is the president and founder of the Brownstone Institute. The website is brownstone.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, a lot of really good articles there and uh, do a terrific job offering um, a truth perspective. And uh, Jeffrey is also a daily columnist featured in the Epic Times newspaper. So uh, Jeffrey, welcome back to the program and thanks for joining us. It's always good to be here, Dennis. Thank you. Jeffrey, your piece uh, that you wrote uh, published on Brownstone Institute on June the 5th titled 20 Grim Realities Unearthed by Lockdowns. And I'd encourage the listeners to go to brownstone.org and check it out. It's uh, very well done. Um, you know, you, you, you went through and pointed out um, a, a lot of realities. It wasn't exactly an uplifting article, but I found it to be fascinating. I wanted to interview about it. Um, you know, you, in the article, you talk about the fact that uh, one of the realities unearthed by the lockdowns would be surveillance and censorship by big tech. And, you know, three years ago, you were, you were a conspiracy theorist, if you said that. And now it is, know. you know, without a doubt, what happened, and it is reality. Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm particularly upset about this one because I had always been a champion of big tech. <clears throat> In fact, I thought uh, technology and social media and all these platforms were going to kind of emancipate us from government. That was my Theory, and now I realize that I kind of bought into a bit of a utopian view uh, uh, naively, thinking that just because because 
these companies you know, were starting new technologies and having to market them and play <clears throat> in a capitalistic marketplace, they would come to love capitalism and all the things I associate with that, among which is privacy. That's not true. Mm. What actually happened is that gradually, and 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 increasingly so during the during the pandemic, the tech companies cooperated very closely with government to to share all of our data, to monitor all of our communications, including private messaging. Uh, uh, companies like Twitter and LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, all of them became basically uh, departments of, of government and departments of censorship and surveillance. And you know, that is a shocking reality. And that's why I listed it as the number one issue, because the very thing that we thought was going to save us has actually become a source of oppression for us. And it's very alarming to learn this, that when you're using these platforms, you know, what you can say, what you're allowed to say, uh, what you do say is being filtered by government priorities. And so during the pandemic, you couldn't criticize lockdowns or masking, much less the vaccine. Without bumping into the censors, you would get your account deleted. I mean, this is especially appalling for companies like uh, LinkedIn. Because this is a, a platform that's designed for professionals to use to make themselves more marketable in the job marketplace. Well, a lot of people are losing their jobs because they wouldn't accept the vaccine. So imagine this. So you sign up to LinkedIn to d extend your network, uh, your professional network, and you've come to rely on it. And your company comes along and says, you've got to get this jab. You, well, you have some doubts about it, so you refuse. And you post that on LinkedIn. Unfortunately, I, I, I don't have a job anymore uh, because I refused the vaccine because I think it's, I didn't need it or I think it's dangerous or, just some, or it's against my conscience. And you post that on LinkedIn. LinkedIn you know, then takes down your account. So the very time when you needed them the most, they were not there to help you. They were there to censor you and even uh, take away your, your own professional network that you had trusted them to build. So, and, and by the way, Dennis, it's, it's much worse than we thought. It turns out a lot of these efforts were being directed by a thing called the Cyber Information Security Infrastructure Agency, something like that, or CISA. And CISA uh, was the very agency within, I have to think about which department it's in. Uh, I don't quite remember right offhand, maybe HHS. But that's the agency that decided to divide the entire American workforce between uh, essential workers and unessential workers, essential businesses and unessential businesses. They're the ones who did that. That same small agency that that nobody even knew existed was they also also operated as the censors, working very closely with social media companies the entire time. And we know this because the uh, uh, the House of Representatives just just released a you know something like a fifty page report on the subject that came out two days ago. Well, if you're just joining me, I'm chatting today with the president and founder of the Brownstone Institute, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. The website is brownstone.org, and you can also read Jeffrey's work every day in the Epic Times newspaper. 
Jeffrey, as you were talking, um, you, you know, number three on your list is government propaganda by big media. And, you know, if you would have written something like that four or five years ago, you know, you'd have had a lot of people out there say, well, wait a minute, this, this is not, you know, this is not communist Russia. It's not communist China. What are you saying? But, 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 but now it's uh, really reality. Can you, can you dive into that a bit? Well, I think most of your listeners will understand what I'm saying here. Um, and I, I have to confess to you, I'm not sure. Well, first of all, I should say that, yes, most news you get on big media is, in fact, government propaganda. And, and, it, and, it, and it goes in a, uh, in a strangely circuitous route. So uh, Big Pharma works very closely with big government. Big Pharma is 70% of the advertising on major media platforms comes from the pharmaceutical companies. So they do whatever the pharmaceutical companies want. And you also have direct FBI and CIA agents embedded very strongly. Obviously, it's the New York Times, but also at CNN and MSNBC and so on. It goes down the list. To say nothing of NPR. So, um, and I think your, your listeners will, will relate to this in a way. This has become incredibly obvious to me. So I turned on NPR yesterday. I try never to do that, but I did it yesterday. And it was overwhelming. It felt like Soviet news. I mean, the very first news item was about uh, the air quality in the Midwest right now, at which, you know, the, the, the hint of that is that, that uh, uh, climate change is coming. And so the, you know, the skies are dark and everything's terrible. And that's why, because of climate change. And so the only way to cure climate change is to take away your freedom. That, that was within the first, you know, 20 seconds that I listened. Then they changed the subject over to Biden's infrastructure plans and his plans to restore the American middle class and blah, blah, blah. Well, the tone of the guy's voice became uh, elevated and sincere and wonderful, like the great, the great, basically the great Biden administration. You know? So, so I listened to just a couple of minutes of it. I, and then they went on to uh, a special interview over um, uh, LGBTQ issues. Right. So, I mean, it, it, it was just overwhelming just how obviously propagandistic this was. And it, part of what I don't know is if, I'm just now seeing it, and I just understand. I'm just now aware of it, or if it's actually gotten worse. I suspect it's a combination of the two, but nonetheless, it it is the, the the terrible reality, and this is why media all seems to be kind of falling apart these days. I mean, we've got some your your show, and the new Twitter and the Musk, so many podcasts, so many great things going on these days. The old media does seem. Uh, uh, seem to be falling apart. So, Jeffrey, on that line, do you see changes coming to uh, the way, you know, traditional media is, is structured? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about Tucker Carlson being shown the door at Fox. Their ratings are plummeted. It's plummeting. It seems like, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of imploding on themselves. Yeah, I think so. And we're in a transition period right now. You know, I grew up in a time where there were three television stations, three net news networks, and um, they all had the same thing every night, and everybody trusted them, and that was that was it. We we lived in a normal time in a normal country, and and that's just how we lived. 
but something is, something went very wrong um, over the course of decades, or you could say it went right, but but everything got decentralized, and now you know it's so decentralized today that uh, there is no longer a national narrative. And, and, and I guess in a way, Dennis, that's good. But the problem is that it, it puts a real strong burden on, uh, on everyone else, to, on everybody, all regular citizens, to do deep research, to not believe everything you read, to find new alternative channels of information, and to really uh, seek to make a, a, find the truth on your own. You know, we can't just trust anymore uh, the three networks to tell us what's right. And that's, that's a burden, but it's an opportunity, too. So, Jeffrey, we've got uh, about a minute left in this segment. Um, talk about what motivated you to found the Brownstone Institute and maybe share with the listeners a bit about your mission. Right. So, so, so after the lockdowns in, in March of 2020, I was in shock. I couldn't believe it was actually happening to our country that the government at all levels, you know, the state, local, federal, would all be united that we shouldn't have the Bill of Rights, that we shouldn't have free speech, that uh, we shouldn't be able to move around, uh, that our businesses have to shut. And, and you know, I, I couldn't believe it was happening. I initially thought it was just a terrible error. But then it just kind of went on and on and on and on. And ultimately, it lasted you know, two years. And I knew that it was a turning point in history. And through this, these pandemic controls, a lot of other terrible things are going to be unleashed, like business chaos and inflation and uh, a health crisis, uh, drug overdoses, the uh, suicide ideation just went through the roof, uh, learning loss among new generations. There's so many things that were unleashed. And I realized that we needed an institution that could understand the root of the problem in order to find solutions and provide some interpretation for all the chaos going on around us. And then also, uh, you know, help provide some guidance to finding our way out of this mess. So that's why I started Brownstone. I didn't see anybody else doing that. And so that's why I started Brownstone. And, and we have meanwhile published I guess we're at six books now and probably about 1,500 articles. Uh, and we hold, you know, constant events and that sort of thing. So it's been, in a sense, a major success. But I don't want to claim it's a success because there's just so much work to do, uh, you know, in, in a journalistic way, intellectual way. Uh, a major job of Brownstone Institute is to provide a safe refuge for scientists who are losing their, their jobs or journalists who have been cut out from their old venues and that sort of thing. And that's a major part of our work is just uh, just serving as a kind of sanctuary for for people, of especially scientists and intellectuals, in very dark times. Well, I'm chatting today with Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the president and founder of the Brownstone Institute. Uh, brownstone.org is the site, and you can read his daily column in the Epic Times. I will continue my conversation with Jeffrey Tucker when RLA Radio returns.
Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Kuberg, and I'm chatting today with Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. You can uh, read uh, the Brownstone Institute's published articles at brownstone.org. Jeffrey's also got a daily column in the Epic Times newspaper. So, Jeffrey, we are are chatting today uh, for our listeners that maybe are just joining us about an article that you published uh, the first part of June titled 20 Grim Realities Unearthed by Lockdowns. And uh, one of the items on the list really got my attention because I guess from my perspective, this is what what I see as one of the biggest threats. And you list influence and power, excuse me, of the administrative state. And, And you go on to say that, you know, the Constitution set up the three branches of government, but now we've got this fourth branch, which contains a permanent class of bureaucrats that nobody elected. Uh, it is a big threat in my view, and, and I'd like you to share uh, what your thoughts are with the listeners. Um, I've been a lifelong, I guess you would say, libertarian or a champion of small government and individual freedom. And I don't think that for most of my life I've fully understood what a threat the permanent bureaucracy is. I knew it was there, but I didn't realize just how much of a bite out of our liberties and our, self, our sense of democracy and self-government it had taken but during the pandemic uh, response, they were the dictators. Like nothing that happened to us in, in all this time uh, was voted on by our elected representatives. And if you think about that, that's not that's not the country we thought we lived in. We thought we we'd go out and vote for people to represent our interests. They would go to Washington and and uh, reflect our interests in the formation of our public life. That's what, how we thought the system worked, but what we learned otherwise that the, is that there's this this army of bureaucrats out there with some you know more than 400 agencies that are that are arbitrarily ruling our life, and there's very we we can do very little about it. They're there all the time. Uh, I mean, just the mask mandate on on travelers, the fact you had to wear a mask. Uh, on, on airplanes was mandated by the CDC. There was, they had no legisla- legislative authority for that. They just did it on their own. And when they were challenged in court, their response was, we can do whatever we want. So, and this pertains to all these agencies. Like I said, we have more than 400 of them. And what you find, the more you look at the structure, is that most of them are, con- are, are mainly controlled by various private industrial interests. So the Department of Agriculture is controlled by big, big uh, ag, ag interests. The FDA is clearly entirely run by big pharma. Uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission is controlled by the largest players within the securities industry. Uh, the Department of Labor is uh, mainly influenced by labor unions and, and big, the biggest possible corporations. And and so on it goes. The, most of these agencies are entirely captured by uh, large industrial interests, and they use these agencies to kind of crush the competition. Um, the what's striking is just how much power they've accumulated over the decades. We didn't even have something like an administrative state uh, from the founding all the way through the 19th century. It only started gaining power. Um, it, you know, following World War One, and then it, the, the power would ebb and flow. But since the 1960s, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And now here we find ourselves in the 21st century, and we've lost our rights of self-government. Um, I've 
tried to demonstrate, many writers of Brownstone have tried to demonstrate this terrible truth that in March 2020, it was a con- something like a final coup d'etat by the administrative state against the elected representatives. I mean, tr- Trump at some point, once he green-lighted lockdowns, it in fact, you know, was not the president anymore. His wishes, because he, he was wanting to open up the country at some point, uh, but he couldn't stop the bureaucrats once they, once they took, took hold, once they gained power. <clears throat> there was essentially nothing they could do and nothing anybody in Congress or the Senate could do. And for that matter, nothing the courts could do. So it, it, it was a grim time. And we're past those times, but I don't really believe that the powers that they accumulated over those years uh, are, have yet to be given back to the people and their elected uh, leaders. I think it still rests with these large, powerful uh, agencies and the interest groups that control them. And that's a very disturbing reality. And I never would have believed it five years ago that we'd be in this situation, but that's where we are. Jeffrey, a couple of the things you point out in your article, and, and these I, I, I think are a bit related. Uh, you, you list the cowardice of intellectuals and the spinelessness of think tanks in that, you know, intellectual leaders, think tanks that are, are, are you know, designed to uh, develop perspectives, or you, as you state in your article, they're, they're, they're supposed to be bold and principled, and yet uh, they all kind of went along with it. Yeah, uh, that was uh, something I didn't really expect, and it's taken me a long time to think through it. It turns out that that people's willingness to speak out is a, is very often connected to their to their careers. So uh, part of the job of a of a professor or an intellectual or a TV commentator is just to is to keep the job and have a secure position and get a salary and not rock the boat. That's what most of them do most of the times. We don't like to think of it that way, but it's really true. And, uh, you know, you think of it this way. If you've got a tenured uh, full professorship at, at an Ivy League university like like Yale or, or Harvard, and you say something that really rocks the boat that's contrary to the whole of the establishment, um, and and people come after you and you and you lose that job, which can happen. There's nowhere for you to go um, after a position like that. You're stuck. So as a result, these high-end professionals are are extremely risk averse in a career sense. So they make their living in the realm of ideas, but quite often they use their voices to reflect the only the ideas that that makes their job safe. Now, this is different from, for example, uh, the person who cuts your hair, uh, the the butcher at the local uh, grocery, or the person who's picking up your dry cleaning, you know, or the person who's coming in to fix your toilet. And you have, these people have different kinds of jobs where if they lose one job, they can quickly get another job. It's not a problem. It's what I call uh, professional fungibility, like fungibility is a term we use in money. To mean that you know it doesn't matter whether I have this dollar or that dollar, they're all the same. So it, professions uh, in outside of the realm of ideas, outside of academia, are far more they're they're able to move around a lot better, and so they don't worry so much about being canceled. It's not a problem. You know, if your haircutter doesn't like his boss, he's going to quit and get get a job down the street. 
That's not true for a think tanker in Washington or a professor at a university. They, they simply don't have many options in life. As a result, they're not as free to speak the truth. So when we need them the most, it turns out that's when they're useful the least. <laughs> that's the terrible irony of it. We saw all this unfold. Uh, so I guess my point is that you're more likely to get honesty and truth from your barber than you are from uh, the local professor at the university. Sad to say, true. Jeffrey, uh, one more thing you list in your article, this is a bit related, that the political left and the political right, uh, you said both sides kind of betrayed their ideals. They they didn't stick up for what they allegedly stand for. Yeah. And this happened... uh, uh, on the left, the ACLU had nothing to say about vaccine mandates or travel restrictions or tech censorship or anything else. Uh, these are principles the left is supposed to agree with, you know, freedom of association, civil rights. Um, that was all thrown out the window, uh, especially on the vaccine mandates. That was particularly disappointing. Now, <clears throat> on the right, we're supposed to believe in the rule of law and constitutional government, that sort of thing. The lockdowns began under the Trump administration, and that confused a lot of people who were supporters of Trump. Why is he doing this to to us? Why is he permissioning? Why is he standing there while my small business is being destroyed and I can't go to my my father's funeral? You know, why is Trump presiding over this? Well, I think he he made gigantic errors, but sadly, for a lot of uh, people on the right. They kind of went along with it because they thought that to criticize Trump was, was I don't know, was not a good idea. You know, they, they, they got confused. So as a result, and this is very critical here, the, this article covers essentially three years of history, crossing two presidential administrations and a topsy-turvy control of Congress. What it means is that both Republicans and Democrats are implicated in this. The left and the right are implicated in this. Uh, everybody's been everybody's been compromised. My my team, uh, which I've always thought to be the libertarians, had almost nothing to say uh, about any of this stuff that's going on, which is something pretty incredible if you think about it. So in a way, it was a kind of a perfect storm. So all the people who should have spoken out just just went silent. So Jeffrey, time for uh, one more. You, you talk about the corruption of public education in, in your piece. And this is something that we learned as a reality. Can you, in a, in a couple of minutes or so, just comment? Yeah, the corruption of public education. It was the strangest feature of the pandemic response to shut all the schools. Some were shut just for a few months, some for a year, some for two years. The public schools are things we pay for with our tax dollars, and we expect them to perform for us. And that's just sort of part of American life and has been for the better part of 100 and 120 years or, or longer. And then they just all shut. And it was amazing because we knew from February 2020 that this virus was never a danger to the kids. Yes, they would get exposed. Yes, they would get infected. And yes, they would recover. And no healthy child anywhere in the world died from COVID. That's just a fact. So you know, why did they shut the schools? It was a, a panic or maybe the teacher unions wanted all the teachers to have an extended vacation. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But you think about it, these are schools we all pay for with our tax dollars, and they weren't there when we needed them. And as a result, we've got an educational crisis. We've got a cultural crisis. 
I don't think it's a, an accident that we've got gender dysphoria sweeping through a whole generation of kids, tragedies all around. It was a real betrayal. And uh, I don't think that this is good for the advocates of public schooling. It, it, it was very bad for them, especially that during the lockdown times, a lot of parents looked into what was going on with the curriculum at the, at the schools, and they what they found, they didn't like. They found critical race theory and all sorts of gender weird things going on, and that created a lot of public anger. So people are have left the public schools in droves over the last uh, couple of years, more so than we've ever seen in 100 years. I suspect that uh, we're, we're seeing a quiet revolution in educational services these days. People are, I don't trust the public schools anymore. They're paying extra for private schools or they're homeschooling now. I've yet to see the data, but uh, there's every indication that mothers with young, young kids um, have left the workforce. Uh, many, millions have, and are now just deciding to teach their kids at home. I mean, that's, that's the consequences of this. You could say it's a good consequence, and that's, I, I suppose, the silver lining in a way. I think it's, it's good. On the other hand, the upheaval of the last several years has been disastrous for a whole generation of, 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 of kids in primary school, secondary school, and in college. Well, the clock says we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. He is the president and founder of the Brownstone Institute. The website is brownstone.org. You can also catch uh, Mr. Tucker's daily column in the Epic Times newspaper. And Jeffrey, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you for your time. Love to have you back down the road. Yeah, Dennis, we've got a lot going on in the economy, the whole world. So let's, let's talk again real soon. Thank you so much. We'll return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to Mr. Jeffrey Tucker for joining us on today's program. I do have a July special report for you if you have not yet requested it. The title of the report is Mid-Year Forecast from a Panel of Experts. If you'd like to get the report, all you need to do is visit the website requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. When you go to the website, just let me know where to mail the report. And I'll not only mail you the report, I'll also mail you a copy of my revenue sourcing book, which contains a retirement planning strategy for the current economy. Well, in the first segment, I talked about the fact that one of the founding fathers, Mr. Thomas Jefferson, warned us not to put private bankers in charge of currency supply. Yet that's exactly what we have done. The Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers and they have controlled monetary policy in the United States for almost 110 years. The 110th anniversary of the Fed is coming up this December. Now, Mr. Jefferson said if we do that, we will have inflation followed by deflation, to paraphrase the quote I offered in the first segment. 
And technically defined, inflation is an expansion of the currency supply. Deflation is a contraction of the currency supply. And because currency today is loaned into existence, when currency is created, debt levels also go higher. Now, we've had inflation, but something that's very interesting has been happening of late. And that is the money supply has been contracting. Now, again, a contraction of the currency supply is deflation, and the symptoms of deflation are recession or depression, and stock prices fall and real estate falls. Now, there was an article on MSN I wanted to share with you. It talks about the fact that economists tend to focus on M1 and M2 when talking about. The money supply. Now, M1 takes into account cash and coins in circulation, as well as demand deposits and checking accounts and traveler's checks. So in other words, M1 is money that's either in your hand or you can get it in your hand immediately. M2 includes M1, everything we just talked about, but now it adds in savings accounts, money market funds, and CDs below $100,000. So it's still money you have access to, but it takes a little extra effort to put this capital to work. You might have to wait a little bit of time to do so. Well, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the M2 money supply soared by 26% on a year-over-year -year basis. Now, that's not a surprise. With all the currency creation that was going on to fund government stimulus, of course, the money supply had to expand. Now, that 26% year-over-year increase in the money supply was the steepest when you take a look at all the years going all the way back to 1870. And incidentally, in 1870, the currency supply expanded dramatically, and just a few years later, the Long Depression of 1873 set in. Now, what's interesting is where M2 is today. M2 peaked at $21.7 trillion in July of 2022. M2, as of May of 2023, so we're talking just 10 months later, is at $20.81 trillion. So that's a 4.1% decline in the money supply. Now, we haven't seen a meaningful year-over-year -year decline in M2 since the months and years leading up to the Great Depression. In fact, Nick Gurley said the money supply is officially contracting. This has happened only four prior times in the last 150 years. Each time it did, a depression with double-digit unemployment rates followed. So only four times in the last 150 years has the money supply contracted like it just did. Now, these occurrences were in the 1870s, the 1890s, and during the Great Depression. However, each time it's happened, a deep recession or depression, whatever term, term you want to use, followed. So what lies ahead for us? Well, that's where my July 2023 special report comes in. To get a copy of the special report, titled Mid-Year Forecast from a Panel of Experts, go to requestyourreport.com. I'll send you not only the report, but I'll also send you a copy of the revenue sourcing book that contains strategies 
to help you potentially navigate what may lie ahead. Again, the website is requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Again, just leave your name and address on the site, and we'll be glad to mail you this at no cost and with no further obligation. Again, that is requestyourreport.com. And if you're not already taking advantage of the resources available at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, That is a free resource site. On that site, you can get access to the weekly podcast, the weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter, and my weekly headline roundup newscast. You can even participate in that every Monday noon live if you would like to. And again, all the information is available at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The website, again, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.